Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Gwen Berry made it from childhood in Ferguson all the way to the Olympics. She competed four years ago in Rio in track and field. And three years later, she won a gold medal at the Pan Am Games. But on the podium, she raised her fist to protest racial injustice. And she's since paid a high price for that. She joins us today to discuss it. Gwen Berry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? So, Gwen, your specialty is the hammer throw. What did you do at the Pan Am Games last summer to win that gold medal? Well, you know, it was it was pretty tough because, you know, it was colder than what we had all expected. Um, and, you know, usually for track and field, it's, a, it's during the spring. Mm. So I had to, you know, grit and bear it. And I had to dig down deep and know that um, with my training and my technique that I could toss a good throw to win and and how heavy of a hammer are you throwing in this event so for the women the hammer is um i want to say 8.9 pounds okay that's a heavy hammer and and how far are you throwing it in a victory like this so i threw it 74 meters wow um, at the pan-american games yep wow Okay, I am not letting you around my hammer because you clearly you can throw. <laughs> so when you had this, you had this championship win here. Um, you get up there on on the, the podium to get your medal. Had you been planning at that point to protest? No, I was not planning to protest. I had no indication or any motivation to protest until I got on the podium and the national anthem played, and I knew that um, with me doing. Me being self-taught and me going to a freedom school, I knew what the national anthem meant, and I knew that it wasn't for people like me. And um, I wasn't at peace with myself on the podium, so then I protested. You mentioned the freedom school. Tell us what that is. So a freedom school is just a school for um, African Americans um, who are here that need to know more about themselves. Because, you know, black history isn't truly taught authentically in schools and in colleges. So... Black people created freedom schools. So you go there, you learn more details, you learn more people, and you just learn more about your culture and where you come from. Hmm. So you learned enough there that when you heard that national anthem, it it kind of evoked a a feeling in you, and you went with it. Yes, absolutely. So I couldn't help but think back to the 1968 games in Mexico City when uh, track athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, they each raised a gloved fist on the podium. Was that on your mind when when you raised your fist? Um, definitely. I feel like as a kid, you know, you always see that image. Um, my father, he always put that image in my head and he always told me how significant it was. And um, every coach that I know and every track and field athlete that I know has that picture hanging up in their room. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that image was definitely resonated with me. So how did you, so you had this moment, you raise your fist. When did you realize after this moment, hey, there's some people who are really unhappy about this? I didn't realize it until the next day. Um, I felt that what I did that day, um, I didn't harm anybody. It was peaceful. Um, It's not like I disrespected anybody or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But once I got off the podium and, you know, I went to sleep that night, I woke up and the world had gone crazy. (laughs) How so? I mean, were people reaching out to you with with thoughts on this or or what kind of, how did it hit you? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I had a lot of people threatening me, a lot of people, you know, of course, telling me to go back to Africa and to leave the country and that I didn't deserve to, you know, wear the uniform. Um, but the, but the death threats were the most, um, the scariest things. I never knew that people could wish bad on you because you just didn't agree with a song or a flag. 
When you say people were telling you to go back to Africa, just for the record here, I mean, you were born and raised in East St. Louis and then in Ferguson. Um, Absolutely. This had nothing to do with your immediate background. No, it did not at all. <laughs> and and where were people finding you to give these threats? Um, on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, those are the most two frequent social media sites. And um, I do have my email address on those sites. So people were actually taking time to email me as well. Wow. So how did you respond to that? Because that can be so hard when there's just such a tsunami of, of anger coming at you. Yeah, it was quite overwhelming. Um, what I did was, you know, I got off social media. Um, I didn't reply. I didn't respond. A lot of people and a lot of friends, you know, they had my back. They replied and responded for me. But um, I just deleted my apps because I just didn't have time for the negativity. So there was this wave of negativity that came from the public. And then you heard from the International Olympic Committee. Um, How did you first hear from them? And and how long after that incident did it happen? Um, So I heard from the IOC and the USOPC um, quite immediately. So the very next day. Um, the very next day I had a meeting and they told me that I broke the rules and they acknowledged, um, they asked me, did I, I acknowledged that I did break the rules. And then um, probably not even a week later, they handed down my probation. When you say you broke the rules, what was the rule that, that they were saying you broke? So the rule is Rule 50. And um, that's the rule that the IOC um, comes up with that you are not allowed to display any type of racial, religious or political propaganda on the field of play. And do you feel like that describes what you did there in raising your fist? Absolutely not. I did not entice anyone. I did not do anything demeaning to anybody. And so um, I don't feel like my my protest was harmful. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't feel like it was as big of a deal as they tried to make it seem. Um, I did something in my time on my stage and um, a fist did not kill anybody. Mm-hmm. where I was, you know, where I was raising it. I was I was harming no one. And you say you were hit with a 12-month probation. What does that mean for an Olympic athlete? Oh, for an Olympic athlete, a 12-month probation means that um, you are not allowed to make the same mistake twice. So in that 12 months, I was not allowed to speak out on these issues that I, you know, believed in. Um, I was not allowed to demean the USA in any type of way. So I was not allowed to, like, talk about the president or anything like that. And I also was not allowed to make any type of hand gesture on the field of play or on the podium or else I would be in further trouble. Okay. So that was more than a year ago. I imagine that timing is not a coincidence. You did keep quiet for that 12 months. Um, here and there, yes. I feel like I did speak out on about I did speak out about it, but um, because there was no competitions, I could not, you know, um, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything further. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so having that probation and having just all this hate come your way, did that end up having any financial repercussions for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I basically almost lost my career if it wasn't for my mentor and my family. Um, supporting me, um, I could have been out of the sport. I lost about 80% of my income. And how so? For those of us who aren't Olympic athletes, we're, we're never sure about how the, the financial underpinnings of this work. Is this in terms of sponsorships? Yes. So everything for Olympic athletes is always based on sponsorships because the IOC and um, every national governing body under that, um, it's not really a business to where they pay us a wage or they pay us a salary for our athletic performances. So Olympic athletes have to find sponsors to help them go reach, you know, reach the pinnacle of meeting the games or getting on the podium. 
So when those sponsors pull out or they defund you, then that's detrimental to your career. And these sponsors, are they corporations or they're, they're uh, individuals? Uh, it can be both. It's foundations, corporations, individuals. Um, you know, it's free game. So you lost, you said, 80% of those. Is that right? Yes. So how did you even pay your bills? I mean, that sounds like a huge um, financial hit right there. Yeah. So luckily, you know, I'm, I'm good at saving money. That's one thing. You know, my family has always taught me how to save money and to, you know, keep money aside for the rainy day. And like I said, my mentors, my friends, um, my living situations, like they've helped me with that tremendously. That's great. Do you expect those sponsorships to come back now that that year of probation is over? Um, I doubt it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you might have taken a permanent hit here. Yeah, definitely. I was kind of blackballed. Yeah, of course. And how do you feel about that? Um, I feel like I'm kind of disgusted. Um, I feel like because the hypocrisy is unreal, right? So I did this at a time where, you know, these movements were not trending. These movements were only seen as bad because, you know, everyone saw what the NFL did to Kaepernick. So everyone was scared to say anything or do anything. Mm -hmm. So when I did it, it was the same. I got the same response, probably even worse, because I can't sue, um, you know, the IOC or anything for me losing money. Because it's not a business. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for me, everything was just, it was horrible for me. It was really horrible. And I can't believe now that the times have changed. And, you know, everyone's trying to be on the right side of history. Yeah, it feels like your timing was, was just terrible. But in some ways, it was maybe good. You were, you were ahead of this curve. You didn't wait until it became trendy to do. You made your move and, and you stood firm. But now you're paying a price that maybe a lot of other athletes who are, who are speaking out aren't, aren't having to pay. Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like through my sacrifice, um, it's making other athletes bold enough and brave enough to to say something. I know you wrote to the president of the International Olympic Committee. That's Thomas Bach. What did you say in your letter to him? Um, I just told him, you know, the Rule 50 has to go. Like, it's, it's no reason why the IOC and the Olympic Committee should not be pioneers and further the movement for equality. Did you get any response to that letter? No. (laughs) You shot a video with the New York Times, and here's what you said in that video about the International Olympic Committee. You said, they love the stories. They want to pitch, oh, well, this athlete grew up without a father, or this athlete grew up in the ghettos. This athlete had to go without food for months and months. But as soon as this athlete is the best athlete in the world, they say, oh, no, you can't talk about racial discrimination in black and brown neighborhoods. Oh, that's not for you to talk about. But that athlete is literally a product of the system. Do you feel like they like to use you until you show that you have a mind of your own and and you have these political thoughts absolutely um that's every athlete and that goes back to you know lebron james uh, with the shut up and dribble you know people love to for athletes to entertain them they love to um capitalize off their grievances and off their past lives and off their struggles but as soon as that athlete turns around and does something for a better cause and it's kind of controversial um no one wants to hear it and no one wants to support it then we all say stick to sports Yep. Then it sticks to sports. <laughs> so I want to go back to the 1968 Olympic Games. We talked about Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They raised their glove fists. They became such a symbol of athletes not sticking to sports with the bold move they made there. I understand John Carlos came to your defense in this whole debacle. How did that feel to know that, that this man who you'd grown up hearing about his act of protest, that he had decided to take this up for you? 
Oh, I freaked out. I was <laughs> so ecstatic and so happy um, that I've gotten to know him on a personal level. Um, he's become one of my biggest mentors as well. Um, I talked to him, and um, he's, he's taught me a lot. So for him to come to my defense and for him to have my back was so incredible because, you know, they, they pretty much started this movement. You know, it's because of them that we're here now and athletes, you know, are doing the same things because we know that times still have not changed. And what advice did John Carlos have for you as you're sort of, you know, this moment where you're in the eye of the storm? Um, he basically told me just to stand firm. He told me that no one will agree with me um, and I will have to make sure I have a strong team, a strong support system and to keep fighting the good fight because I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. As, as much as I thought I was or people tried to make it seem like I was, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Gwen, I'm, I'm curious. Ferguson is such a, a it, it's one of these cities that it has resonance beyond its size within the national conversation. When people think about the protest movement, they think about Ferguson. Does being from Ferguson shape your thoughts on this? Oh, absolutely. Um, I feel like I'm a product of, you know, my environment. So being from Ferguson and me, you know, living there and understanding the things that went down there and understanding, you know, just the complex nature and the tension behind Michael Brown's death, um, I feel like that resonates with me a lot. And so that has shaped my mind and my feelings a lot because I've seen it. I know you're training in Houston these days. Do you think you'll ever end up back in, in Ferguson or the St. Louis area? Uh, I don't know. I love I love St. Louis. You know, that's my city. But I'm I'm kind of trying to travel, you know, all the states, you know, live here, live there and just experience it. Um, I'll definitely probably buy property there and that's always home, but I don't know if I'll be like based in Ferguson. So you want to see the world a little bit more. Yeah. Now you've also said that protest is not in itself sufficient. What are some of the big changes you would like to see in this country that we live in? Um, to keep it plain and simple, we need the equity put back into our black and brown neighborhoods. Um, I feel like we've lost so much. Black people have lost so much, um, you know, we basically helped build this country and we were unpaid for our sacrifices and our services. And I feel like reparations are needed. You know, there needs to be more education and there needs to be more money put back into these black and brown communities. We need to rebuild. When you see the backlash for something as straightforward as just putting your fist in the air, um, does that give you just despair that this idea of reparations, where you'd actually be asking people to reach into their pocketbooks or, or the government to reach into its pocketbook, does it just feel like this country's never going to be ready for that in light of just how violent a reaction you got to something that, that wasn't even a financial ask? Absolutely. Um, I feel like the system is broken. And of course, we know that the top tier in America wants to keep the money there. And so if they can get mad over a fist raised in the air, then um, they don't they don't want to lose anything because to them, raising the fist during the national anthem is a loss. So imagine them trying to, you know, imagine them giving back money or putting money into communities that doesn't benefit them. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, it's a tough road ahead. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know, we look at everything that has changed in the last 12 months or the last 13 months. I mean, since you made this stand versus where things are today in the world of athletics, does that give you some hope that the big change can happen quickly sometimes? Yeah. And, and, and Gwen, for you, um, you know, we've talked a lot about your, your thoughts on politics, but as far as your athletics go, what's next for your athletic career? Um, for my athletic career, I'm definitely going to, you know, I'm definitely am 
already um, training for Tokyo 2021. And then we have world championships here in Oregon in 2022. So those will be my next big hit out. And so what happens? I feel like we see these these former athletes, um, they're able to, you know, join the NBA or they can do this or that after they're done with the Olympics. What happens with an expertise in hammer throwing? Does that lend itself to, say, a coaching job or, or something else in, in track and field? Yeah. So, yeah, I think for hammer throwing, you can be a coach anywhere because, you know, hammer throwing is a specific event. And I feel like if you can coach the hammer, you can coach a lot of other events. Um and I think that's I think that's the best path for hammer throwers if they want to stay involved in the sport. And is that you? I mean, do you want to stay involved in this sport? I think I'll stay involved in the sport, but not actually coach it. Um, I'll be more of a mentor, um, just a more of an advisor more, um, because I really want to get into activism. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself ever running for office? Uh, no. No? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but you want, to, you want to work there to agitate and, and to try to make change. Yeah, definitely. I'll be, you know, I'll be a little sniper and, you know, put my two cents in here and there. But um, I want to work closely with kids and, you know, I want to work in those neighborhoods that, you know, America has abandoned. Well, Gwen Berry, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I want to wish you the best, um, both in the upcoming hammer throws as well as in that future activism. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.